Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. China Talk this hour. Unofficial talk. People talk. Close to ground level. We're listening for affinities and anxieties, the attitudes in the U.S. and China that could complicate relations in a transition. We've heard the official line from Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who can make the challenge from China sound like a threat. China has a top-tier fighting force, Blinken said, and it aims to become the world's leading power. The question this hour is, do the people here and there know better or have a different intuition? Our guests are teachers, talkers, listeners in both cultures. Kaiser Guo is a celebrity in digital China, first with the heavy metal rock band Tang Dynasty in the 80s, now with the Seneca podcast from his American base in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We open with Jing Tzu, the cross-cultural historian at Yale. Her masterpiece so far recounts the literary and typographical breakthrough that made Chinese writing modern. She was part of NBC's coverage of the Beijing Winter Olympics this past February. At Yale, she teaches the course on China in the world. I asked her for a description of this 2022 moment. I think our moment is volatile, but I do have to say that the recent statement by Blinken, it doesn't come as a surprise and it doesn't really mark a moment, but rather a long trend that we've known for a long time. Even since 2008, the last national defense strategy, we know that China was defined as United States' most formidable strategic competitor. So the moment is tense. And we even think about how we started 2022. Seems like, you know, China was basically about to enter one of its most important years since Mao's death, arguably, because President Xi Jinping is facing his third term. You know, the Olympics happened in February. Seems like it was a pre-coronation event. But part of the messaging was definitely to the domestic audience, while the others to the outside. But it definitely seemed already then that China was prepared to essentially, in some ways, cordon itself off from the antagonism and the external effects of the United States and the current hostility. And I think in general, this is the situation that we're in. China wants to protect itself from any kind of influence, whether in the form of potential economic sanctions in the future, so on and so forth, of course, large part because of the Ukrainian crisis. And I think the United States is also seeking to exert pressure in different ways. We see the formation of the recent the Indo-Pacific Economic Agreement, already preceded by AUKUS and Quad. These regional alliances, United States is definitely re-enlivening its alliances and partnerships around the world. If we were looking at a chessboard right now, I would say all the pieces are still moving. Kaiser Guo, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, you have audiences and commenters and correspondents in two great nations and markets, so to speak. What's the temperature? I'm really glad that you want to focus this on sort of the people-to-people relationship because that's a really important component of this that too often sort of gets lost in the conversation. We live in a very different world than we did prior to 2008, and one of the big reasons for that is a huge number of, of Chinese people have, of course, access to the Internet. They're able to see the United States and what Americans are saying, what we're writing, and, and the same goes the other way. There's sort of a mutual transparency 
it used to be prior to that because there wasn't instantaneous translation. There weren't languages that they had in common. And frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of reason for them prior to the Olympics to pay that much attention to the register of discourse about the other. Now that they do, though, in a, um, an optimistic moment, we used to believe that the Internet would bring us all together, that mutual understanding would promote you know, friendship. I think quite the opposite has happened. I think that in this case, connectivity itself has been one of the drivers of the kind of hostility that we're seeing in the mutual misunderstanding. And unfortunately, a familiarity with one another has bred a contempt, as the old saying goes. There's pretty terrible mutual misunderstanding, and, and this really does come from both sides. Now, that said, I think that we would be really wrong if we were to just to sort of write this off, that China has become this sort of implacable foe of the United States, because there are voices of reason on both sides, and some of them are in positions where they really can influence the conversation in really meaningful ways. Tomorrow morning, I've got a symposium that I'm going to be a discussant at, and one of the papers is written by a Tsinghua graduate student, a PhD student in political science at Tsinghua University named Jason Zhou. And he looked at China's America Watchers, a cohort of younger America Watchers, and found that overwhelmingly, they don't believe that America is China's implacable foe. They don't believe that America is in irreversible decline, in absolute decline. They want to see rhetoric coming out of China toned down. They think that it's counterproductive. Sure, they have a lot of criticisms about you know, the hegemonic behavior of the United States and things like that. But anyone who looked at what these people who, who are young, they're all in their 30s or 40s, what they bring to that conversation, they would find a lot of common ground with it here in the United States. So all hope is not lost, but things are pretty, pretty tough. The really important thing, as always, is to be able to look at it from the Chinese perspective. We don't think often enough about how transparent our conversations are. You know, they know what we're saying. They know when we're talking about Kung flu and China viruses. They know when we're talking about the China threat. I mean, they hear it. We make no effort to actually disguise it. So what do you think they're going to think when they listen to the sort of toxically aggressive bellicose rhetoric that gets bandied about on our airwaves here in the United States and on Twitter? And I wonder, Kaiser, in some ways, that train may have left the station for several years now. If you're talking about the average Chinese citizen, has been living in a kind of media sphere in a particular kind of information echo chamber where they are recycling very nationalistic sentiments, as we've seen from you know, Chinese Twitter, Weibo, and the way that people rallied to the Russian cause. I wouldn't be ready to, to pronounce the train as having already left the station. I mean, let's look back at a couple of moments in recent history. In 1999, the U.S., quote-unquote, accidentally bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. You know, there were big anti-American rallies, all that stuff. If you went back to Beijing six months later, you wouldn't even known that that had transpired. It was forgotten so quickly. A couple of years later, in April of 2001, there was an EP-3 spy plane that was shot down, well, not shot down, it was it was a hot-dogging Chinese pilot, and it collided, it bumped wings with and sent the EP-3 into an emergency landing on Hainan Island. And that was one of those moments where we thought, this is going to be absolutely terrible. But at the end of the year, China joined the WTO, had signed on to the global war on terror, everything was peachy again. And for the next six years, you could hardly find 
anything that really roiled the waters in the U.S.-China relationship between roughly September 11th and the eve of the Olympics. Okay, so you had Darfur and you had some poisoned dog food allegations and some drywall that was supposedly chemically treated in a way that some people got sick. But beyond that, you had Chuck Schumer and Lindsey Graham perennially screaming about trade issues, about China's currency being undervalued. But that was about it. So yeah, things changed quickly. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what has changed in the people-to-people, cultural, humanities level of feeling back and forth. But I'd like to take a stab at it. Jingzhu, you teach a course at Yale called China in the World. These are two general gifted American students who want to know more about China. What are you teaching them and what are they wanting to learn? What I do in this course is actually basically teach six contemporary headlines in historical context. We tackled AI surveillance one time. We dealt with China and Africa, China, Southeast Asia, China, the Arctic, Chinese language, when we were in, in the throes of Confucius Institute controversies and shutting them down on university campuses. The students want to understand China apart from the grabby media headlines, right? That they actually don't have an awareness and they want an awareness of what brought us here. So for instance, you know, the incidents that Kaiser talked about, and I agree, those seem to have bubbled up and then kind of disappeared, the spy claim collision, so on and so forth. But if you think about that event, 2001, already then there was a lot of controversy and back and forth that the Chinese did not like the apology. They really wanted you know, like they wanted specific terms of apology made by the United States, which never quite came. So already, I would say the misunderstanding had always been there. But for geopolitical reasons, it had been simmering. And now I think with COVID and also our previous administration and also China's current leadership, I think all this just became sort of the lightning rod for where we are now. And I would say that it is a ch- indeed a challenge to think about how to teach the students about China and the world now. And in fact, I have to think about it since in spring 23, this course will be made into a public open lecture for everyone. How do you think of that mission, cultures talking to each other in this day and age between China and the U.S.? First of all, even within the United States, I think efforts have to be made to bring together different domains of conversation and perspectives on China. Because I think the United States does lack a coherent understanding, and that has been inhibiting its ability to come up with a comprehensive or coherent strategy vis-a-vis China. When I was in Beijing in February at Olympics, I said that our understanding of China cannot just be conveyed in the classroom, the boardroom, the war room, or the press room exclusively. We need to bring different kind of experts who interact with China differently together in forging our own conversation and to figure out how to move forward. Because I do think that the people-to-people understanding, it always seems kind of divorced. You know, understanding, it's going to become kind of a bad word. Is that you don't want to understand your greatest adversary. Like, that makes you sympathetic to them. But I think that is a misconception, right? That somehow understanding an adversary does not enable us to plan our strategies better in the foreseeable decades. I think the concept that you're talking about here is cognitive empathy, right? Informed empathy, which is not sympathy. It's this ability to, you know, hang up your own sort of values on the coat hook as you step in and look out from behind your counterpart's eyes, right? And you you sort of take in what the world looks like, filtered through their an understanding of their values of the institutions that they're familiar with, of their traditions, 
of their habits of mind and their own kind of cognitive frameworks. Once you do that, you can then step back out with a really good knowledge of how your words, your actions, your policies, your behavior are going to land on their ears. And I think you can craft better policies. This has to take place not just at you know leader-to-leader level. This has to take place at a people-to-people level. I love the way you frame that up with those six headlines. Yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about. I call it informed empathy. But, you know, there's another fancy word for it, which comes from, you know, Robert Jervis from the whole sort of IR perception school. It's called security dilemma sensibility. It's this ability to kind of turn the chessboard around and see what it looks like from your opponent's side. See what your moves look like viewed from across the board. Coming up, mutual admiration lurking in the mix with fear and rivalry. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source, talking China relations for the rest of us. Talkers, teachers, voters, news watchers, book readers, moviegoers, students, travelers. Our guests are Americans with Chinese histories, too. Mediators in two countries and cultures. Jing Tzu teaches the China story at Yale. NBC took her back to Beijing to help cover the Winter Olympics. Kaiser Guo is a musician and a writer with an international podcast. This is the sound of the band Tang Dynasty that he helped found in 1989. Speak of the contrasts that you encompass here, both of you. Hope, fear, patriotism, curiosity, dissent. The thing to understand about the Chinese We all kind of have an intuitive sense for how Americans feel. I can talk about that, but I think it's more important for us to understand Chinese set of perspectives. There is a real, genuine, deep-seated admiration that is there among a lot of people. And there is a genuine, deep-seated, and heartfelt resentment at the same time. And these things are intention in the Chinese psyche when it comes to thinking about the United States. They have a natural affinity, really, for Americans. I think this is not true of the Chinese attitude, say, toward Russians or toward Japanese or toward the Brits. But they do feel it toward Americans. You know, they are both these people with this gigantic sense of sort of historical entitlement and a sense of their own exceptionalism. They're both these, you know, continental-sized economies that believe in their heart of hearts that they can sort of retreat into kind of splendid isolation. They believe they can go through life kind of comfortably knowing only one language. So there's a lot of similarity. And for the good, too, they're both people with a a real deep sense of meritocracy, of a hard work ethic. They see and admire that in Americans. Now, what has it felt like, though, in recent years for Chinese? This is, I think, a very, very widespread belief that the United States simply does not want to face a peer competitor. They understand themselves as having created a society that now is innovative, it's reasonably well off, it's heading toward even greater wealth, that it is militarily and economically, you know, a multidimensional peer competitor of the United States. They think the Americans are deeply discomfited by this and are lashing out the way that, you know, the big kid on the playground does when another big kid shows up. If you put yourself in their position and see what the last few years have felt like, they feel like their society has been deeply stress-tested and that it has won. 
The regime certainly thinks so. It feels like it's come out on the other side of this series of stress tests with more political capital banked, with an even greater sense of legitimacy, of regime support. And they feel like now is a really sort of time for China to feel its oats. Now, what are the stress tests? One of them, of course, has been the economic thing, the trade war and the related technology sort of competition with the United States. None of the big Chinese technology companies has, in fact, folded in spite of America's best efforts to kneecap it. This is the Chinese perspective I'm talking about here. They really feel like they've survived the tariffs that Trump imposed, the export controls that have continued into the Biden administration. And then, of course, there was the great test of COVID-19. Certainly until February or March this year, they felt like they had really, really triumphed, that they had kept deaths to under 5,000 while you know, the United States was soaring past 500,000 deaths and now is over a million deaths. They really felt like uh, they had done a much better job of dealing with the virus. And then, of course, there's, you know, all the opprobrium that China has come under because of Xinjiang. and The and, democracy test and the human rights test. Yeah, the human rights test specifically. And Hong Kong, they felt like this international opprobrium, they've somehow survived it. They have managed to keep their name from being, you know, completely dragged through the mud, or so they think. They've not lost popular support over it. In fact, there's very, very deep-seated popular support for these policies. Of course, they don't understand, I think, the full extent of the sorts of abuses that are, are happening in Xinjiang or the full extent of the draconian nature of the national security law in Hong Kong. But even if they do, hey, they kind of buy the government argument over it. So they feel like they've come through these tests and are stronger on the other side. Jingsu, what's your version of that? It comes through the Blinken speech that China failed the test of democracy that was supposed to be part of the understanding with Nixon in 72, that there would be progress toward popular participation, but then also that China has not learned to play in the economic world order. They don't seem to want, and maybe they don't want, to be part of the Western system. I wouldn't make a statement like that because I think certainly the global financial market, China's actually still kind of abiding by the rules. Uh, for how long, we don't know, but that's certainly one area where they seem to be pretty good team players. But I just want to say that if we were to take Kaiser's recommendation, just practice for a moment, cognitive empathy, I would say that, you know, from China's side, since 2006, They've been issuing their own white papers indicting the United States of human rights violations. And for every accusation that or every indictment and every abuse of human rights that the West can levy against China, China has found a way to also kind of hit back with its own set of evidence and accusations, um, some of which we are familiar with in this country, gun violence, racial discrimination, so on and so forth. And so if we were to practice this, you know, in, in film speak, which I sometimes teach, you know, there's this analysis where you talk about shot, reverse shot. It's kind of you look at everything from one character's perspective, then you look at the perspective from their interlocutor. So it's not just that you put yourself in their shoes, but you also see the entire context that you wouldn't necessarily do if you're just looking at it from your own perspective. And I think that's actually vitally important because there's no doubt also a kind of mirroring that's been going on between the United States and China. With the escalation, the political escalation is partly due to this fact that China feels that it is actually reactive rather than active. And the United States feel as well that it is actually reacting to something that China had done. And so I think this is kind of a, a tangle in the Gordian knot that has not been undone. 
where we find ourselves now has been building up for a long time. So much of this engagement is done by obscure slogans like the pivot to Asia, for example, or totally meaningless phrases like who's number one. But what did you think this new era was supposed to be about? And what else might it be even now? Well, unfortunately, I think the new era from China's perspective is that a window of opportunity has opened that had not been there for 100 years that this is a moment where the East is rising and the West is waning. And I think, you know, in terms of this, these set of observations, you actually don't need to look very far or very wide in the Chinese populace. In 1988, August 1988, there was a Chinese political scientist who came to University of Iowa. He stayed about half a year. Actually, there was a piece in the Washington Post describing him as the most dangerous man that no one knows about. He has been... President Xi Jinping's number one advisor, his conciliary. His name is Wang Huning, by the way. That's correct. Wang Huning wrote a book called America Against America, in which he actually surprisingly did not negate democracy, but actually concluded that China would be a better embodiment of fairness and principle and prosperity than the United States has demonstrated itself to be. And in this book, it's not solely negative. He found many things to admire the United States for, but he also saw its downfall. And this critique is not so different from what had been levied by leftist critics within the United States either. We're at a moment in international relations where we can't really afford to think of external relations as having nothing to do with domestic relations and domestic conditions. There's a lot that we're embroiled in in this country now, right, that we can directly link to how it enabled a competitor like China to rise, how it has put us in a position that's actually we're not that well equipped to deal with, and we're still trying to find our footing. Kaiser. Yeah, do we look like a really good advertisement for democracy right now? I mean, Chinese friends of mine are utterly baffled by the level of partisan division in the United States. They cannot understand why we can think that this is a good thing. They say to me things like, if you add up all the time that you Americans spend squabbling amongst yourselves over policy and the amount of emotional intensity that you pour into you know, this internecine rancor, God, could you imagine if you redirected that into fixing your freaking infrastructure? Can you imagine if you redirected that into actual technological innovation, into solving your massive healthcare problem? I don't think that we're aware of what we look like from the outside. Again, this cognitive empathy thing. I don't think that Americans understand. I think that we continue to be deluded in the study that we look like, you know, the paladin in shining plate armor on a white charger. We don't look like that at all. We look sclerotic and in a huge way. This is wonderfully true, Kaiser. And many, many Americans see ourselves that way, stumbling and bumbling, divided, irrelevant, trivial in our understanding. The problem being, we hate to hear a rising power telling us that. Right. We have this really handy way of of shutting down the argument. We just say, oh, that's just whataboutism. Any criticism that comes from one of these rising powers about us, often it's meant to sort of excuse equally bad behavior. But we, we need to take part of that to heart. We need to understand that when China does publish these white papers about our system of mass incarceration of black people in America, when it talks about things like border separations or our immigration policy or gun violence in America, 
we shouldn't just brush that aside, just as we don't want China to brush aside our criticisms of its human rights record. On the other hand, I really do wonder how much of this talk of how it's just about United States quashing a rising power is actually a constructive one. I'm still optimistic in that way that I think there are areas of strategic competition, but there are also areas of potential cooperation. Right? We think about people have talked about climate change and other areas. Maybe there's a chance to cooperate in space. We just need to be very sober. This is neither like a great powers game,、uh, nor something we can ignore. We're really, I think, properly entering into the era of competition where we're repositioning ourselves and kind of, I think, the moment of shock and awe, of disillusionment. You know, if we think about. Since Kissinger, let's say China and the United States have been dating for four or five decades, and all of a sudden they find themselves. Well, I didn't know you were like that, and that's what you wanted. You didn't want spending time with my in-laws, and you want your own bank account. So, <laughs> kind of the we're sort of past that era, luckily, and the disillusionment has settled. So, if we were in the 12-step program towards competition, I'm hoping that we're reaching an area of the term that I've recently seen is the coopetition, right? Competition plus cooperation. Uh, that would be really nice. I was at Davos and I covered the session with Kerry and and Xi Jinping, and I did you know feel that my heart rise and it would be nice. But then I re- remember how even some of the least hawkish environmentalists who do call for cooperation between China and the United States have been writing papers in the last couple of years. How you know maybe competition in environmentalism could produce a race to the top, and maybe the, the line that everyone in the Beltway likes to use is, "Oh, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time." It's actually quite naive to think that competition doesn't crowd out cooperation. It often does. We are fundamentally emotional creatures. Our governments are emotional, and when we are at each other's throats, you know, it doesn't feel like we can go have a pleasant drink that evening after we've just sued each other in court. But why, Kaiser, cannot everybody see that only China and the United States together can confront the climate crisis? The problem is the same problem that we have with the climate crisis itself. It doesn't present itself with sufficient urgency. It's not going to be until, like in that Kim Stanley Robinson novel, when there's a gigantic million-plus death event that results directly from catastrophic anthropogenic global warming. It's not going to be until that happens that we're going to wake up. I mean, we're still the frog in the pot of slowly heating water. We're not getting scalded. We're just slowly cooking. I keep saying to people, I'm holding out for the alien invasion as like the only thing that's going to finally end the, the impasse. What I'm dying to hear from you is how the popular feeling back and forth from China and the United States could lead the governments to something more constructive. So, in the United States, we recognize that there is such a mechanism, and it's the the one that we're very very proud of. It's called democracy. It's the ballot box, right? Ideally, yeah, you could see. If you had a a real sea change in attitude toward China, you could see it reflected in policy. In fact, right now, what passes for policy is really just attitude. We don't have, as somebody once wisely said, a China policy. We have a China attitude, right? Interesting. It was the same in the Trump administration. It's been the same in the Biden administration to date. So yeah, there is that mechanism. What about in China? The jury's still out on the level to which. Popular sentiment actually translates into policy in China. I think that there's、uh, some evidence that it happens, and we know that 
the Chinese Communist Party is constantly taking the temperature of public opinion. It has really sophisticated sentiment analysis that it uses. And we know that it likes to at least point at public opinion as this force that sometimes constrains its options in the foreign policy arena. But, you know, we don't know whether it does that sincerely or is just sort of using that as a fig leaf as an excuse to do things that we don't like. But, but whatever the case, I see a close correlation. I don't know whether it's causal or in which direction if it is, but I do see correlation between, in both countries, popular attitudes and public postures. In fact, I have not seen a period where popular attitudes toward a, you know, any country, whether it's Japan or Australia or Lithuania or the United States, is not in pretty close sync with official policy. We don't know in the China case. It certainly couldn't hurt, though. Nixon acted very boldly. Popular culture didn't make that move. He had a notion with respect to the Cold War in general that this was time and China was getting mature to the point that we got to start again. I'm wondering how in the world the souring of that experiment can be mitigated or changed by popular feeling, popular common sense, that there's room in the world for two peer competitors, uh, but also that this could be a deeply enthusiastic relationship. How do we change the terms of the government abandonment of the engagement of the last 50 years? First of all, it didn't come out of nowhere. There were all sorts of reasons, I think, by the late 1960s, especially after 1969, when there were open clashes between the Chinese and the Russians on the Chinese northern border. They finally came to accept that the Sino-Soviet split was real. They saw the strategic opportunity. And he lived in a time that there wasn't Twitter. There wasn't social media. There wasn't cable television. There weren't 24-hour news cycles. There was just, you know, Walter Cronkite. They very happily spun it exactly the way that Nixon and the Nixon White House wanted them to. It was a very different world. It's a lot messier, the world that we live in right now. And I think that's worth emphasizing, the fact that it's not like the two countries have been completely closed off to each other like they were during the Cold War. And all of a sudden, they have so much to learn. There's an opportunity for enthusiasm and euphoria. I mean, we remember how touching it was when, you know, the first American observers or scientists or scholars would go to China during the Cultural Revolution and the enthusiastic reception, the friendliness, right, the utter curiosity. Even in 2008, when China was sponsoring Olympics for the first time, I mean, the amount of enthusiasm, right, and general like, goodwill among the populace was tremendous. But now we cannot really rely on that, right? In some ways, I will argue that this rivalry exists and it's difficult because China and United States have never been more alike in the sense that a lot of Chinese who are in their 30s and 40s grew up with access to American rock and roll, to American news, right? They've tasted and they know what it's like. It's all, that's also a double-edged sword because it also means that they cannot possibly go back to a Mao era, right? A kind of blind endorsement or patriotism. So in some ways, that is an opportunity as well. But I'm just saying that at this point, you know, we can't expect, you know, this fuzzy people-to-people relation to all of a sudden dissolve this animosity and we all go back to where we were. I think we are in a more mature, this is a very mature stage of competition, right? It's kind of like we've seen the good and the bad. 
And now we have to move forward soberly, knowing that every step of the way, there will be pushbacks and there will be constant competition, strategization, moving pieces around the chessboard that is going to be worldwide. Coming up, where is the cool factor in Chinese pop culture? And why the deficit in China's soft power? This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source with Kaiser Guo and Jing Tzu. Let me ask a question almost anew. At the level of popular culture, popular feeling, popular attitudes, what is the wisdom, the curiosity, the interest that could be brought to bear when the strategic relationship seems to be losing altitude? So when has the United States ever done that? When, when have we ever enthused about another country at that level? We don't do that. It's really not us. But, but uh, it's, it's kind of a perverse argument. But the fact that fear of anti-Chinese popular sentiment, which is so deeply embedded, especially on the Republican right right now in the United States, the fact that that is constraining and shaping Biden's policy choices suggests to me that if he were shown evidence to the contrary, however unlikely it is that that would ever be the case, that if for some reason the Republican base were all huge fans of everything that Xi Jinping was doing, that everything that China was if they suddenly all started reading the romance of the Three Kingdoms and watching Chinese, you know, soap operas and listening to Chinese rock and pop. Yeah, yeah so, yeah, maybe then they would sort of take the temperature of, of American popular opinion and realize that it's a winning play. But that's not happening at all. You know, the Biden administration seems absolutely terrified of being attacked on its right flank. I think somebody should let them know that they'll be attacked there anyway on the issue of China. They will get attacked there no matter what they do. I think it's time for them to do something bold. Now, there is an excellent essay that just came out in uh, Foreign Affairs. It's written by uh, somebody who teaches at, at John Hopkins Sice named Francis Gavin. He makes the case that with great power crisis comes great power opportunity and says that right now is a moment for another Nixonian opening. And I think, actually, at an elite level, I mean, this has nothing to do with popular opinion, at an elite level, China's leadership is ready for it. They have had a hell of a terrible year. They would love to ha- see the pressure come off for a little while. They have been, they were hoping against hope that when the Biden administration took office in January of 2021, that the temperature would come down. And they have been really, really sorely disappointed that it hasn't. Is it too late? Maybe. But I don't think so. I think that they are actually primed for just such a thing to happen. I would say in the cultural realm, there's actually quite a bit that we can collaborate with. There's actually quite a bit the unopened channels that we can open as, you know, political relations, chill, and just about every other familiar channels communication are kind of frozen. I would say that, you know, if you look inside China, there's actually incredible creative energy. I was judging a eco-design competition for a, a, a cultural foundation in Beijing last year. And I was, I was stunned by the array of creative ideas, young designers um, just out of, you know, design schools or just starting to teach or starting to work. You know, they had this, this very creative ideas about ecotourism, the creative industry. You know, we, we don't think of create, creative industry in the same way here in the United States. But in China, you know, this is in part that happens spurred by the state. We think of, um, you know, uh, like 20 years ago or so in Beijing. But now there's been a kind of real momentum 
to cre- create things like fashion, if I could think of it, fashion, architecture, ecotourism, video, like in terms of the, the video, the IP industry surrounding video games or metaverse, even nearing metaverse kind of creations. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of room for thinking about those things and experimenting with those things in China. And as for film, it was film Wandering Earth, that was made, which is actually also based on this science fiction writer's, one of his short stories. You know, it's really interesting. A couple of years ago, I was poking around in this as humanists always do, poke around with no liability. You know, I was in Hollywood um, interviewing executives at Warner Brothers and whatnot about why is it that Chinese films don't make it big in Hollywood? And oddly enough, with Wondering Earth is a question of hero. The, the idea of the hero does not translate well. Because, you know, in the West, we see since, since, since Top Guns is about to come out, and you can be sure I'll be watching it, you know, this idea of one person, one hero, often the redemptive, you know, that sort of Christian theological image of a sort of redemptive hero fallen, need to prove himself. But in Wandering Earth, the hero is actually three generations, grandpa, this father, and the son. And so Hollywood found that very kind of hard to accept and hard to wrap their heads around. That why are there's like a like a generational that seems to take the cool factor out of the hero right away. So I think it just happens that those two things you point at, literature and film, are precisely the two places where we all see the greatest kind of cultural difference and misunderstanding <laughs> being articulated and being made visible to us. The biggest box office film in China in modern times has been the Battle of Lake Kangjin about the critical Chinese intervention in the Korean War that stopped the American charge past the 38th parallel. What does that tell you? <laughs> that a Chinese victory against American forces in Asia is such a runaway hit. Yes, and I think that very much reflects where we are now. This is, I think this is the challenging, you're talking the 2021 film, right? The right. battle at Lake Chang'e. Exactly, right? exactly. Chen Kai Ge Cui Hark. This I think this really bespeaks the sentiment. There's a reason why Korean War is being reinvoked here. You have to remember Korean War is also where basically the, the first kind of implicit or offstage joust between China and the United States. And I think there's a revival of that. I believe Zhang Yimou's new project is also focused on the Korean War. Uh, I believe it's about a sniper. And so there's all these sort of patriotic um, films that are being re-thematized to, in some ways, to anticipate, and I think to galvanize support for this kind of, this rivalry that is between China and U.S. Yeah, it's often a, a litmus test. You can always tell when, when there are a lot of Korean War-themed films coming out, you know what that means. <laughs> and when they do films about the American Volunteer Corps, the ABC, the Flying Tigers, you know that that, that signals a warming. The problem here, it's it's deeper than just the politics. There's an aesthetic divergence happening right now where I, most Chinese films that do well in the, the domestic box office would baffle American audiences. They wouldn't understand the, the humor. There's just a massive divergence. This has only been exacerbated by the effective sort of isolation that's been imposed by COVID-19. I don't have a lot of optimism about Chinese cultural products. At a deeper level, China bangs on about soft power an awful lot, but it it possesses very little of it. You look at a country like Korea that punches so far above its weight, then China just does absolutely terrible. I, you know, I absolutely agree with that. There's such a strange thing. Kaiser, you have to help it's me understand It's not strange. Because you were part of that scene. You were part of that scene. Why is it that China lacks a cool factor? 
Well, I resent that. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a as a as a well known former rocker, I'm sure, or even a, a current rocker, but I mean, you were there in in the eighties. Like, right, what is right. it well, about it that didn't catch on, like American Blue Jeans or Coca Cola or the the boy bands of Korea? Well, I, I think part of it was that it was just a really thin strata. I mean, I think part of it was that there were three rock acts in the nineteen eighties and early nineteen nineties that that suddenly sort of seized the high ground and, and wouldn't get out of the way. I mean, mine was one of them, right? I mean, everyone, <laughs> all, all, they thought there were basically three Chinese rock acts, Sui Jian, Bao, and Tang Dynasty, right? And that was it. And then there was no room for anyone else. And there was no competition. It came out of nowhere. And they didn't have the kind of depth. I mean, they a lot of these bands could do six songs, which is all you were ever going to be able to play at a show. It's not like you were going to play a stadium show as a solo act and play a two-and-a-half-hour set. So they didn't have the depth. And, and then, you know, it was enough to, to live very, very comfortably with your six songs that you'd play in rotation. And, yeah, then everyone's sophomore album just kind of sucked. And, and yeah, that's, that's just sort of how it went up. The rock scene missed an opportunity to really shape what was still then a very plastic, malleable market and allowed it to harden into a love for the genuinely saccharine, awful you know, Canto and, and Mando pop that was coming out of Hong Kong and Taiwan that was just really highly produced and, and really kind of soulless. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it was a pity that it was a missed opportunity. But I think that the problem really is that, you know, chi- the Chinese government thinks that it can create soft power from the top down. And it doesn't understand that, you know, soft power has to seep up from, you know, between the cracks. It needs to come in from the periphery. Uh, that's that's where, where mm. it, it happens. I mean, the, the sole exception would be these factories that create, you know, BTS and other other Korean acts. But I think you really have your finger on the pulse because I think this is actually part of a larger conversation about innovation, right? Does a society like China actually encourage kind of individual individual spark innovation, creativity, kind of thinking outside the box, even maybe stepping over the line? I mean, I think they do when it comes to technologies that are devoid of political content. I mean, you know, study after study shows that Chinese people are actually quite capable of of critical thinking, of genuine innovation. We can't think about the material realm and the cultural realm necessarily under the same rubric here. China has shown an amazing capacity for technological innovation. I mean, there's no question about that right now. But cultural innovation... Yeah, sure, but it's just it never gets to see the sunlight. It's never given real nourishment. It's also part of where, where we are right now in Chinese society. China is is a society that's still very wrapped up in just sort of primitive capital accumulation. It's just like everyone is just working their asses off and trying to save money. And, you know, most of the time, music is just entertainment. It's not art. It's just sort of something you put on in the background after your long day. You're not going to want to be intellectually challenged by, you know, your Spotify playlist. That's that's just yeah. not where China is right now. <laughs> I'd like to ask you both. Explain popular feeling in China, maybe here too, around Xi Jinping's, shall we say, silent solidarity with Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. Maria Reknikova, who teaches at Georgia Tech, uh, argued, and she's absolutely right, that when they're talking about Russia, they're not talking about Russia. They're talking about the United States. It's not support for Russia. It's it's, it's opposition to the United States. Exactly. Right, right, right. There's really no love lost between the, the Chinese people and the Russian people. There's, they don't feel a deep sense of affection. They're not 
intimately familiar with the popular cultural output of Russia. I mean, maybe in an earlier generation they were, but that was the Soviet Union. It was very different. There was an, a strong ideological you know, component to it. That isn't it at all. I mean, I think that it's just simply a matter of, of opposition to American hegemony. They see Russia standing up in the face of, of you know, what they perceive as American hegemony. And they see rhymes between Russia and what it constantly talks about, the refrain about feeling that its security was threatened by NATO eastward expansion. And what China is undergoing right now, where it feels anxiety about the salami slicing on Taiwan, the constant patrols up and down the east coast of China, uh, the phone ops in the South China Sea, you know, these freedom of navigation operations. They feel like what Jing was talking about earlier, these different alliance systems, the Quad, AUKUS, now this new, it's an economic one, but the IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Anytime Indo-Pacific is used, you know, there, there's a strong sense that China feels the subtext is containment. They feel like Russia is sort of an avatar for what China would like to be able to do. And of course, some of them will even draw certain parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan. I don't think that it, we should believe that these are in any way accurate. I believe they are not. But there are a lot of people who, who will do this in China. Um, and I would just say that in April, the Chinese Twitter has this new feature. It was instituted and there was an explanation that it was precisely put in place for the Ukrainian crisis. That is, anytime someone posts anything about Ukrainian crisis, that it will show the town, the city and town where you're, you're posting from, as well as your IP address. And instead is doing this in order to combat and to counter misinformation from, you know, nefarious foreign powers. That system that, that they implemented that would give the geolocation of anyone posting anything related to the Ukraine war is really significant. It's related to something called the Great Translation Movement, a group of people who have been posting on Chinese social media to try to shame zealous Putin supporters and translating their posts into English so that the rest of the world can see you know, what a bunch of jingoistic morons in China are saying. The interesting thing is that the government is sorely embarrassed by this. They understand what a bad look it is, and they think that that actually constrains China's choices when things like that are put out into the world. I want to ask you both, where is popular feeling in all of this conversation around Xi Jinping himself, about to extend his term, an almost unreadable or unread character in American popular opinion. What do the Chinese say about their guy in the struggle? Well, I mean, the simple answer is that we don't really know. It's very, very difficult to get a clear picture on that. It's difficult to do just straight out public opinion polling, especially on a sensitive topic like that. We do know that uh, in multiple uh, polls that we've seen, there is a pretty high level, sort of to an American, a very surprising high level of regime support. Uh, and, you know, even if you try to take into account the, the controlled media environment, that is, say, propaganda and censorship, when you try to take into account a sort of, you know, preference falsification, you still end up with pretty high levels of regime support. But that said, look, I mean, I think... Jing, you probably do, and I, I know people who, you know, in private will will complain bitterly about him. Uh, what does it sound like, Kaiser? Well, it's it sounds like, you know, hey, he wants to be emperor again. You know, how dare he decide that he wants to abolish this, this longstanding norm 
and seek a third term as general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. They think that he's isolated and stubborn. And, you know, there's been a lot of certainly a lot of criticism over his sort of uh, digging in his heels on zero COVID policy, despite the travails that Shanghai was going through. There are plenty of people who are unhappy. It's just really hard to get a sense of proportion. How many of them are there? Do they have a voice in the upper echelons of the Central Committee or of the Politburo itself or of the Standing Committee even? There's just all sorts of rumors constantly, and it's really hard to tease out which ones are credible and which ones are, are you know, mostly the product of wishful thinking. Jing, you're on. Yes. So short answer is all, it's all speculative, Chris. Although I do appreciate the fact that in your question, you always insist on separating that there's the Chinese people, the popular sentiment opinion, and then there's the Chinese state, there's Xi Jinping. But as with Kaiser, I think these are the times where the average Chinese citizen or even our counterparts, the people of Kaiser and I know, don't necessarily say what they mean and don't necessarily mean what they say. They're very careful. They're very careful about who they're talking to and what they say. I think basically until, from now until October, things are going to be in this very cautious, kind of very suppressed kind of state. You know, something is going on because in the past month or so, we see Li Keqiang, the premier of China, who is normally sidelined, actually gets a bit of play. His speech was given a page two coverage in the People's Daily, which the official newspaper, which is quite unusual. So you can be sure that we don't even need to necessarily ask what the, popul- what the populace thinks. I think even within CCP, there's a bit of volatility. Um, so as to what will happen, I think 2022 will go down in history as a year of uncertainty, unpredictability. And I think how we will end, your guess is as good as mine. Jing Su, Kaiser Guo. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Jing Su is a professor of East Asian languages and literatures at Yale. Her new book is Kingdom of Characters. Kaiser Guo is the host of the Seneca podcast and co-founder of the band Tang Dynasty. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org. And check out their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org, where you can find Christopher McCallion's argument that strategic clarity on Taiwan will paint the U.S. into a corner. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of smart, independent podcasts, including The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one masterpiece at a time. In her latest episode, host Tamar Abishai is bearing down on the new work of the painter and sculptor Sarah Z at the Storm King Art Center on the Hudson River in New York. Listen in at thelonelypalette.com or go to hubspokeaudio.org or wherever you get your podcasts.